Drafting Archetypes is sponsored by Grey Viking Games. Grey Viking Games is the best place to get MTGA arena codes. From booster packs to awesome cosmetics, check them out at greyvikinggames.com and use our code DRAFT for 10% off. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black, and today we are going to jump into a first look at Strixhaven. So when I'm recording this, the set still won't be playable online for over a week, and also isn't playable on paper because it's not available yet. So this is well before I've actually played with any of these cards, based purely on reasonably extensively uh, reading the spoiler and kind of thinking about how cards fit together. The previews or the uh, set list or text of all the cards uh, organized on the internet before you've seen the actual physical cards. So I'm gonna just try to build a sense of what this format's about, uh, what's going on, what the archetypes are, because as a gold set that focuses on five colored pairs, obviously this is gonna have a different texture than we've had in the last two sets that I've covered on this show. So my expectation at this point is that there still will be 10 primary color combinations that people will play, uh, but I don't think that those are the 10 pairs. I think that those are the five enemy colored pairs and then the five wedges being two groups of enemy colored pairs. That doesn't necessarily mean there will be exactly 10 archetypes. Sometimes there can be two fairly distinct archetypes in a single color combination. And if the format seems to emerge such that there are two really different ways to draft a color combination that each kind of deserve their own look, I do expect that I'll uh, break those up and look at each of them in that way. But until I kind of have the experience to like really know, my best guess is that the next 10 episodes will be five allied color pairs and then the uh, five three color wedges. Those will be kind of the core archetypes. I don't think that those are the only things you can draft. I suspect that more than zero, less than 5% of decks might be allied color pairs, and also that much more common than that, I think, will be decks that are four or five colors. That will kind of be best facilitated by... I'm gonna, I'm gonna struggle a little bit in terms of knowing all the names. I think Environmental Sciences is the name of it. The uh, Colorless Lesson, yeah, Environmental Sciences. The two-mana Colorless Lesson that allows you to uh, search your library for a basic land, reveal it, put it in your hand, then shuffle, and you gain two life. Because drafting a single copy of this card will allow all of your cards that learn to function as fixing. It'll make it a lot easier. Basically, you can play a deck that splashes extra colors and have a lot of access to colors that you don't necessarily have very many sources of in your library. If you have an environmental sciences or two in your sideboard, and then a good number of learn spells that are cheap. And when you're doing that, it has this interesting effect that whatever color your cheapest, the learn spells that you want to cast earliest in the game are, would want to function as your primary color because that's how you're enabling your color fixing. Rather than, oh, I'm base green because I have a green spell that's gonna find a land of another color. I mean, you could be like base black with a lot of the two mana spell that makes a one one pest 
and learns trust me there's a card like that i don't know all the names offhand i'm sorry you'll be able to like grab environmental sciences with that card and then cast it and then find a color that you're missing and so that kind of does a cool thing where you can have a deck that's base one or two colors splashing some number of other colors enabled out of fixing that just like gets attached as a mode of several cards in your deck i think that there will you know, maybe one player at a table, two players at a table will be kind of like in that space where you're splashing another color and facilitating it with learning. But also I think that that'll happen a lot in the context of like my archetype, broadly speaking, is Quandrix. And my deck does Quandrix things. But I happen to have an environmental sciences in my sideboard, a couple of learned things, and I'm splashing like another card or two that are powerful in another color. That splash won't fundamentally change the way that your deck plays or what your deck is about. But then there will also be, presumably, an archetype that really leans into that five color good stuff or whatever, but that functions in a different way than we've seen before as enabled specifically by environmental sciences. Environmental sciences is not the only kind of like colorless five, man five color fixing thing. There's campus guide, which is a two mana two one golem. When it enters the battlefield, you can search your library for a basic land, reveal it, shuffle your library and put the land that you found on top of your deck. And then there's also letter of acceptance, which is a three mana artifact that taps for mana of any color and has two tap sack draw card so there's like a good amount of common five color fixing that's pretty reliable and not a super high pick for people who aren't doing ambitious things with their mana base that are going to make it a lot easier to be like four color not green the multicolor decks aren't going to rely on green the way that they typically did in Kaldheim, which i like because i know that i found that whether i was multicolor or not I felt a really strong pressure to include green in my deck in call time. And it's nice now that you can be any number of colors with or without green. So it's kind of, it's kind of cool to like remove the fixing element from green, even though I know some people like that fixing as part of, you know, green's identity in the color pie. But here it looks like where green is ramping, it's largely ramping in a way that doesn't fix your mana. And it has a good amount of that. Field trip. Uh, one in a green, search your library for a forest, put it under the battlefield probably tapped, it's not in front of me, and learn. And so that doesn't fix your mana because it only finds forests, but it does ramp you, except that it learns, which means if you have environmental sciences, now it does fix your mana. It requires another card and, you know, mostly it ramps. And then there's like Eureka moment, which is two green, blue, instant, draw two cards, you can put land from your hand onto the battlefield. So that doesn't give you a color that you hadn't drawn naturally. It doesn't give you more access in your deck to any of your colors, but it does accelerate you. What green is doing is less fixing and more ramping, which gives green this like connection to mana that is part of its color pie, but in a way that really opens up the possibility space for like how different decks are configured and what their primary colors are and everything and how much they're splashing. That's a nice little twist from especially where we've been in Kaldheim, where green was really, really good at fixing, but you needed to be green to have that powerful fixing outside of just like having dual lands in your deck. So with that kind of like big picture set, I want to talk briefly about what I think each of these archetypes are going to look like, what they're doing, what jumped out at me. This is the cards that made sense to put together to me. I don't expect this to be exhaustive. I don't expect it to be entirely accurate. I think that, you know, playing with the cards and understanding exactly how different sizings of creatures line up and different cards that play better than the read or whatever 
I might find that what looked to me like a thing to do may not be the thing to do, or I might not notice something that is the optimal thing to do. But all the stuff that I've looked at, I can assure you, I've thought through like, okay, are there enough commons for this? What's the curve like? Does this strategy look broadly like it would function on a conceptual level? It's unlikely that I'm missing regularly by a lot, but it's also unlikely that any of these are gonna be perfect. Silver Quill is black-white. This is the presumably most aggressive uh, color combination in this set. And the way that I think that it is best suited to attacking is by augmenting its creatures. Basically, there aren't auras that make your creatures bigger in this set because this set is about these magecraft triggers where your creatures do something when you cast an instant or sorcery. So instead of making auras, they just made instants and sorceries that put counters on your creatures. Silver Quill is going to, it has like some instants and sorceries that it's going to want to use to make its creatures bigger that will play like enchantments, except they can't be disenchanted or anything. But you've still invested a second card in making the creature that you have bigger. And you can get away with doing that because just like in Boros in Kaldheim, you have a good number of creatures that have useful keywords or abilities that make putting more counters on them better than it would be if they didn't have this text. Uh, for example, Star Pupil is a white... 1-1 one, one for 1, well, zero, 0 with a plus 1 plus 1 counter. When it dies, you can put its counters on something else. And because all of the cards that would be auras are spells that put counters on something, you can put counters on this, and then if it dies, well, now you just put a bunch of counters on another creature and keep the ball rolling. But also, there is both a black and white common trick that protect your creatures. Uh, there's a 1-mana black spell that either puts a counter on a creature, which gets a way to grow your creatures, or it gives a creature indestructible and hexproof until end of turn. And then, it, or something very close to that. And then there's a white trick that gives a creature plus two plus two and hexproof until end of turn. So white and black are both giving you ways to protect your creatures. And then expanded anatomy, that is a sorcery that puts two counters on target creature and it gains vigilance until end of turn. If you draft one or two expanded anatomies, now you can have a bunch of different cards that learn, have that as your plan, and it plays like your deck has a lot more of this like, pump spell aura kind of thing then it would you know play if you had just like drafted one copy of a card and had to put it in your deck these lessons that you can build around in some way where environmental sciences is like oh well my deck needed a lot of fixing now i functionally have a lot of fixing in one card or expanded anatomy where it's like oh i i know that part of my game plan is playing a creature and making it bigger i didn't find a lot of different auras but i found this one aura that i kind of have a lot of tutors for and so now I can do this thing. So expanded anatomy seems like a crucial part. The like black-white plan of play a creature, make it bigger, and protect it. Then you know you have creatures that have like lifelink or flying, or can move their counters around that you can put these uh, counters on. One trick here is that there are not a lot of great commons that are aggressive that let you get these lessons really early in the game. If that is a priority, you're going to want to prioritize any lessons that you'll, you look like you'd want to cash them early that let you get access to this stuff. A thing that I noticed when looking at like the cards I'd want to play in a Silver Quill deck like this is that there are very few, non-zero, but relatively few, three-mana creatures that you're looking for. At first glance, it's like, oh, there aren't enough three-mana plays in this deck. That's awkward. But then you realize, oh, well, there's Expanded Anatomy, 
and there's uh, whatever the name of the card that gives you an inkling is, black-white hybrid lesson that makes a 2-1 flyer. So I guess I'm just planning to use lessons to spend three mana. The problem is it's not very likely that you're going to want to put a lesson into your hand on turn two. It's not clear how these actually let you spend three mana on turn three. What you might be interested in doing is, oh, I'm going to play another two drop and use a one mana trick or pump a spell or something, or just your deck's not necessarily going to rely on spending three mana on turn three, and that's fine. Piece of the puzzle that's pulling in a different direction here is that while there's a shortage of threes and an abundance of twos, there are a lot of fours. If you model this deck off of Arachniform green-white deck from Kaldheim, that deck doesn't want a lot of four mana creatures. And this, like, uh, Silver Quill has, like, four different, like, four mana commons that would be reasonable to put in a deck like this. But you don't want anywhere near that many. That's why I think there's something else going on here where the deck plays, like, a little bit, like, longer of a game. You're playing black-white, a lot of your cards are about this, like, cheap... A lot of the, like, cards that exist in your card pool are about this, like, cheap aggressive thing. And all of the other guilds, or schools, or whatever, they're, all the other color pairs are very much geared toward late game. And so if you're playing, like, oh, no, no, this is, like, slower Silver Quill. It's like, oh, well... So you just let everyone go over the top of you then? It's not just, oh, well, we have a cheap cur curve, so we have the ability to, like, play a cheap game. Given the context that this deck is going to exist in, and given that, like, the other color pairs are ramping and, like, building engines and, like, casting giant powerful spells and huge creatures and stuff, white-black doesn't have a lot of that. What are you hoping is gonna gonna accomplish if your curve is built to like play a bunch of four mana creatures and have them hang out on the battlefield for a while? Aren't the other people gonna do more powerful things than you? Either they're just a bunch of four drops and they're not very good and whatever they exist, move on. Or there's something that I'm missing about why there are so many different four mana white and black creatures that it looks like it's more than the white and black deck that I've identified would want. That's kind of my first impressions about where it looks like Silver Quill is gonna end up. Next up, Lorehold. This is red-white, and I think this is the color pair where uh, design went furthest out of its way to give it a radically new identity. Really try to make it not play like white and red have played in any other sets. It involves definitely some cards that look a little weird for white-red. This is about largely payoffs for things leaving your graveyard and then like ways to put things into your graveyard and then things that result in those cards leaving your graveyard so that you can get some triggers that happen when they leave the graveyard. The only triggers that you're setting up are there's a common 3-3 three, three for 3 that scries when something leaves your battlefield. And then the really big payoff is there's a 5-mana uncommon legend that makes a 3-2 spirit when something leaves your graveyard. I want something to enter my graveyard and then leave my graveyard. Part of the equation is like very robust for supporting a single uncommon, which makes me think that that one uncommon is gonna be really good. You will be able to have things leave your graveyard pretty regularly to uh, make 3-2s with that creature. Quintorius, Field Historian. Well, I have drafted Quintorius, and so now I'm going to like prioritize putting things in my graveyard and making them leave my graveyard and generating spirits with it. The other thing that's going on here is tribal spirits. There aren't a ton of payoffs for the fact that you're spirits, 
There is Blood Age General, which is one in red for a 2-2 that taps to give all of your attacking spirits plus one plus oh. And then there is uh, Lorehold Apprentice, which is uh, one in a red for a 2-2 that has Magecraft. All of your spirits can tap to do a damage to target player. There, there are some other cards that pump your spirits, but those are two of the, two of the main things, if not the only things. Um, that reward spirits. The design of Lorehold was extremely cooperative about making it so that basically every creature that looks like it's doing the thing that you want to be doing in Lorehold happens to be a spirit. And it looks like it would be very easy to draft a deck that's almost all or all of your creatures are spirits. So I know that 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 took me by surprise where when I saw the cards that like did something with your spirits, I was like, oh, okay, this like bumps up my tokens that I'm making. But it, it doesn't just bump up your tokens. It also bumps up all of your like non-token creatures. They're just all spirits. It's just spirits all the way down. There are a few creatures that are like good or whatever that you might play that happen to not be spirits. But if you're looking for spirits, it's not hard to fill your deck out with them is what I'm saying. So for the most part, you're playing like generally high toughness spirits doing things that enter and leave the graveyard. And by enter and leave the graveyard, what I mean is there are cards that let you spend mana to remove them from the graveyard. There are cards that let you return things from your graveyard to your hand. It's generally very grindy in a way that feels very black. Usually either black, white, or black, green would be the primary decks that are doing this, I would say. But here we are. I'm not sure that all Lorehold decks will be like super grindy, play a bunch of like one fours and value creatures and then slowly remove stuff. The other thing that can happen here is Twin Scroll Shaman is kind of a reprint of Bloodthirsty Redcap. It's one in red for a one two double striker. And there are some common tricks that play really well in red that play really well with the double striker. Like there's a plus one plus three trample learn for three mana and then obviously you can pair the same lesson uh expanded anatomy you know any deck that can learn can have an expanded anatomy to have a like put expanded anatomy on my twin scroll to make a three four double striker some portion of any red deck uh whether you're lorehold or prismari both of them don't seem like they're primarily about oh i'm gonna like play creatures and pump spells and attack with them. But Twin Scroll Shaman is really like pretty well supported and powerful and I think will lead to a red aggressive this thing and tricks. And then I guess I'm also looking for some other creatures that I can use these tricks on if I don't draw my Twin Scroll Shaman. And I'm not sure exactly like where they're gonna fit or what that's gonna look like because Lorehold is about this kind of like grindy engine situation and Prismari, the next deck on uh, my list. So this is blue-red. Primary thing seems to be about casting big spells, like spells that cost five mana or more, many of which cost seven or eight mana, which is not necessarily, which is not at all what I think of as a deck that's looking for like cheap creatures with double strike and pump spells. So we have Lorehold that's like this, you know, grindy recursion graveyard deck and then prismari that's like card draw make your land drops play huge sorceries play some creatures that make those huge sorceries cheaper deck as the two red decks and then we just also have like a double strike common and some pump spells so my guess is 
that so many red decks won't want Twin Scroll Shaman that you'll end up just having like, this is my Twin Scroll Shaman deck and that's gonna be an archetype. And it can, you know, you can supplement it with cards from whichever of these you want uh, or both. Yeah, Prismari is like pretty straightforward. You're gonna want card draw because you're gonna want to keep making your land drops because that's the easiest way to like cast really expensive spells you're going to want removal because you need to live long enough to play your lands and cast these expensive spells. The creatures that you're going to want are creatures that reward you for casting spells and tell you that your big spells are cheaper. It's a very, like, go big blue-red deck. But again, I think there's also, like, a small tricks build of Prismari, but I don't know how common or successful it'll be at this point. You know, I mentioned that, like, black-white was, like, the most aggressive deck i would say there there exists this kind of like red core that also might lead to some other aggressive decks in places that have a lot of cards in their colors that aren't looking to support that and then quandrix is uh blue green and this deck is very straightforwardly about ramp it has a bunch of cards that pay you for getting to eight mana it notably has an apprentice that is just like a completely different power band from the other apprentices as far as I'm concerned. So the apprentices are like this set's answer to guild mages. They're two mana, one from color A, one mana from color B, two twos that all have a magecraft ability that generates some trigger when you uh, magecraft, so cast an instant or sorcery. The silver quill apprentice gives plus one plus O to a creature until end of turn, while the quandrix apprentice looks at the top three cards of your library and puts a land from among them into your hand. So we can either maybe do a damage to something or we can draw a card. <laughs> and those aren't, those are not similar effects. Like the Quandrix one is just way better, like way, way, way better. And so the fact that your like apprentice is better means that you might be more likely to look for ways to trigger Magecraft just to use that more. But it's one uncommon, whatever. Um, yeah, like I said, Quandrix is ramping, but the ramp stuff doesn't automatically come with fixing in this set. But we're still talking about like, oh, I'm drawing cards, I'm searching for lands, I'm playing a long game. It's not gonna be hard to splash in this archetype. You're just gonna have to like look for cards that aren't necessarily green to enable if that's what you're looking to do. But I do think that it will be pretty common for Quandrix as it almost always is for blue-green decks to splash other colors presumably very rarely white because that's not an enemy of either one of these so it's not giving you access to any gold cards you're looking to either build like a teamer deck or a sultai deck and if you're teamer you're basically like well i'm ramping anyway so i might as well splash these like really impactful sorceries and by the way a lot of these really impactful sorceries have the ability to like let me discard them to make a treasure so that can you know gives me a good out if i can't cast my splash card it'll let me cast other splash cards or whatever so it's like very natural to like steal some of Prismari's big stuff to put in your Quandrix deck. You can also take basically just like good creatures or like extra blockers from Witherbloom. The other thing that Quandrix is doing, I guess, is uh, making fractals. Like all, all of these have a token creature that they're doing. I think the fractals are a little bit more notably a relevant strategic part of what Quandrix is doing, just because there are some things that interact with all of your fractals, which I guess is true of some of the other things 
also but there are some like fractal type build arounds there's like square up is an instant that sets a creature's base power and toughness to four four and because fractals are zero zero counter creatures that have x plus one plus one counters on them that gives them plus four plus four there are ways to like build around oh there are a lot of zero zeros in my deck and that's kind of like the other thing that i imagine that quandrix could be doing that's like less ramp focused and they're also just like some green creatures that exist at a pretty good rate. And there's also like a Spellgorger weird, except instead of being a red 2-2, it's a green-white hybrid 2-2. So green-white hybrid with Magecraft, put a plus one, plus one counter on it. That stuff could lead to more of just like a big creatures version of blue-green, which is certainly not unheard of. That's that's what seems to be going on in Quandrix. Witherbloom looks like it has a significant life gain matters theme carried entirely by Blood Researcher, which is a common 2-2 menace that gets a plus one, plus one counter whenever you gain a life. A Johnny's Pride Mate, but for one more mana with Menace. Johnny's Pride Mate is a really powerful card, and getting that at common is significant. I think that like a lot of Witherbloom decks will have two or three of these, and if you have like two or three common Menace Pride Mates, it's really worth like making those grow. There are a variety of things that are like one-shot life gain. The most notable life gain thing that's going on in Witherbloom is when a pest dies, you gain a life. Now we're kind of like finding the intersection between making token creatures and sacrificing them and being a life gain deck. You can end up going from, oh, look, I'm trying to draft life gain to, oh, I guess the life gain that I can find is these pests that only gain life when they die. So now I'm looking, I guess I'm looking for things that make more pests and I'm looking for sack outlets or chump blocking or something. Obviously because it's all like the life gain theme is resting basically on a single common, you won't always have it. And sometimes you're gonna be like looking to find value in other places out of these tokens. And sometimes the life gain is just gonna be about like living to cast bigger creatures or whatever. Basically, I think Blood Researcher is really well supported, really strong. It's going to be like kind of the backbone of a lot of Witherbloom decks. That's my breakdown of where I see the five pairs initially. To comment a little more explicitly on the wedges, I think Abzan, so the intersection between Silver Quill and Witherbloom, looks to be like a Counters Matters deck in that Witherbloom has, you know, like the Blood Researcher that I just mentioned gets counters, and Fractals from Green get counters. There's like an uncommon in white and an uncommon in black that reward all of your creatures with counters on them. So I, I think that that looks to be the intersection for me. On the more aggressive side of Witherbloom, and we're going to be like doing augmentation of our creatures in some way. So this would probably be the best home for common 3-3 in black that lets you spend a mana and sacrifice a creature to put a plus one plus one counter on something as a sorcery. And that's like kind of weak card without a great home, but makes a lot of sense when you're looking at both Silver Quill and Witherbloom together, where Silver Quill has like keywords that you're trying to put counters on, and Witherbloom has creatures that you're trying to sacrifice. That card, I think, might be in the set specifically to play into this like Abzan Counters Matters uh, space. Obviously, because it's like a relatively weak card that's not desirable in other places, I'm not saying like you should draft that early and be like, I'm Abzan now, this is what I'm about. Okay, if you're trying to figure out, like, why does this card exist? When, when would I ever want that? I think this is a deck that might be able to take advantage of it. It's a reward, not a reason. It's a payoff, not uh, an enabler or whatever. It's, it's just something to do there. 
in Sultai. I, I kind of already talked about this. Uh, this is the intersection between Witherbloom and Quandrix. I mostly think that like Witherbloom is giving you just like random defensive stuff or removal that you're using to augment your Quandrix ramp and big creatures game. Pretty standard Sultai stuff, really. Nothing too like, oh, this is the emergent plan here that I've identified at this stage, which isn't to say that there can't be anything that exists. Mardu, the intersection between Silverquill and Lorehold. Most obvious thing for me is the Twin Scroll Shaman builds that I talked about. Combining that with the general plan of I'm gonna pump my creatures makes a lot of sense. So like basically just like a silver quill deck using twin scroll shaman outside of that it could just be like a lore hold control deck that has black removal those are like the primary ways to approach like mardu and then teamer i talked about this it's just your quandrix ramps to your prismari spells pretty straightforward I'm, again there could probably be some kind of aggro deck here but the the natural fit to do is just like ramp to giant sorceries jeskai is similar situation where well, we have like prismari big spells and we have this like defensive infrastructure from lorehold so we probably just use the lorehold stuff to like gum up the ground make our opponent not want to trade because that fills our graveyard and gives us our like graveyard synergy payoffs and stuff and now we can just like splash big deal end of the game sorceries and it's like pretty easy to splash those in our like uh red white control deck anyway that's that's it that's my overview of where i expect this set to go absent any playing the idea here of course is just to like you know, when you're looking at the sets, when you're approaching your first draft, kind of feeling like you have a better understanding of the context that your cards will exist in and what you're looking to do with your first decks. I don't expect any of this to be, all right, well, now I know how to draft the set. I- I'm, I'm set. You know, this covered everything, but it certainly isn't the level of depth that I strive for here, but I'm uh, doing what I can to find a useful way to prepare you for a new set without having the ability to play with the cards for myself. As I mentioned, that concludes my lecture. So I am going to open this up to discussions and questions from chat. And uh, while I'm allowing chat to come up with any questions, I do want to, again, uh, take a moment to thank everyone who has chosen to support Drafting Archetypes on Patreon. Really, really appreciate the outpouring of support there. I want to welcome a lot of new patrons. I'm really, really happy to see. Thank you so much, everyone. For contributing so thank you to uh jm and suboptimal and jt booth uh christopher dr unks the boxer wells andrew esben and mike really appreciate everyone checking out the uh, patreon and deciding that it was something that they're interested in if you think that you might want to support the show just check out drafting archetypes on patreon.com check out the benefits offered and see if it uh, looks like something that you'd want to you know get involved in support i do post show notes and my draft logs and stuff like that over there if you're interested you'll find out all the details there also i want to mention i received feedback from a patron really appreciate feedback from patrons that i should probably include like a discord community for patrons of the podcast um, as a lot of other podcasts have Uh, dedicated discord servers to talk about the podcast i already have a publicly accessible discord my intention is that everyone will just put all their drafting archetypes questions and discussions on my personal discord the challenging assumptions discord there's a link to that on my twitter and on my twitch though admittedly i think that the 
uh, Twitch link might temporarily be broken. I should really fix that. But also, the, you can um, enter the exclamation point Discord command on chat to find it. There, there are a lot of ways to find access to my Discord. It's on my website. My website is samuelhblack.com. And there is a Discord link there. So if you're looking for a place to discuss this podcast, there is a Discord for it. It's not labeled for this podcast specifically. Um, I'm, I will definitely uh, consider opening up um, a few more like specific topic-focused channels on the Discord. There is a place to talk about that. And I, I realize that I haven't been pointing that out or uh, you know making a mention of it in this show. So if anyone's looking to discuss this podcast or any of the ideas here with other people, come to my Discord. Talk about it. <laughs> As for questions from chat, let's see where we're at. All right, we have a question about a specific card, which is uh, what I think about the two mana five four that requires either sacrificing a creature or paying three additional mana. And there is a one mana black creature when it's in your graveyard. It has, it's a one one mana, and when it's in your graveyard, you can exile it for three mana to uh, and pay a life and draw a card. And I think this question is about what I think about the intersection between those two cards. It's obviously good. Both of those cards are generally pretty good in Witherbloom and the curve of like having a five four on turn two and then getting, you know, recouping your card uh, is powerful. I think like the five four for like just casting it for five mana is not bad every part of that is a good thing to be doing that's that's certainly part of what's going on in witherbloom next question is how do i feel about the potential of the golem i assume that the golem in question here is the uh three mana two three that when it's targeted you can spend two mana to copy the spell that's targeting it thus uh triggering magecraft a second time I think that card is or a really good payoff for Silver Quill. At that point, it's not just like doubling combat tricks. It's essentially doubling your auras. So where you have these spells that put counters on a thing, you can put counters on your golem, pay some mana, put a counter on something else, trigger Magecraft an extra time for your troubles. I think that's a really, really strong card to be part of what you're building around in the like Silver Quill counters deck. Next question, how much splashing and draft do I anticipate? How much fixing is there? So I mentioned early on that there are a colorless 2-1 that can fix your draws to fix your mana. There's a colorless mana artifact that can fix for any mana. And then there's also a colorless lesson that can fix your mana, meaning anyone who's looking for colorless fixing has a lot of it available. There's also a Trans Guild Promenade or whatever version of that card you like to think of, Rupture Spire or whatever, uh, like land that taps for five colors of mana. And then there's the like campuses or whatever, the common dual lands that let you scry. There's a lot of fixing for people who want it. And it's also at a power level that I don't think is going to be snatched up by people who are playing two color decks, which makes me think that splashing is going to be uh, very easy and pretty common. Um, especially since uh, there are a lot of gold cards and like gold cards that are expensive and powerful. And also most of the decks are like more controlling and looking to play long games. So it's really just all the pieces there for there to be a lot of splashing in this set. I wouldn't be surprised if most decks are doing some splashing. Is the fixing good enough for three or four colors? Again, if you're willing to prioritize slightly weak cards to enable your fixing, yes. What do I think about aggressive Prismari decks running the copy spell with removal as their uh, target or all the magecraft triggers? I think that aggressive Prismari decks, so red and blue aggressive decks, struggle a little bit with having powerful 
one, two, and three mana creatures that are like giving you this aggressive foundation. Prismari, the hybrid creature, the two mana, three, three. Prismari, Pledge Mage. Yeah, there's a cycle of Pledge Mages that are hybrid creatures in each of the colors. And I think the Prismari Pledge Mage looks very good, but it's a it's a three three for two with that uh, has defender, but then it basically like loses defender on Magecraft. Failing that, you're basically looking for like some two mana two ones with no combat abilities, and that makes it a little bit hard to draft an aggro deck. But you do get good support for three mana. You get uh, Frost Trickster, which is like a flying Frost Links two and a blue for a two two flyer that taps a creature and it doesn't untap when it enters the battlefield. And then you can also use Quandrix Pledge Mage, which is the uh, 2-2 that grows in a replay instant or sorcery. And a few other, like, good aggressive 3-drops. The aggressive version of Prismari, I think, is, like, less, like, low-curve aggro and more proactive mid-size. Like, you play 3-3 for 2, and then you can't attack with it the next turn because you're playing another creature on turn 3. And then you start playing spells that like make your three drops bigger and let your two drops attack. And now you're like pressuring them, but in a kind of like a bigger way. There'll be like defensive, like I'm gonna like hang out and stay alive and cast giant stuff, Prismari decks, and then big aggro, like mid-range proactive uh, Prismari decks as like the more assertive way to build a Prismari deck would be my guess. Next question, I've mentioned two and three color archetypes. Do I see a five color deck being a common deck to go for? If so, is there a certain color or school that would likely be its base? So I, I mentioned very early, I, I do think that there will be four and or five color decks, and that I think that it will be helpful in those decks to have a base of one or two colors. You can play more copies of those lands and then splash the other lands with ways to like fix for them. The cheap lessons that you have to fix your mana or the early plays that you have to stay alive, you can cast those like on turn two before you've fixed and then have something in play to keep you alive and then spend time fixing and then spend time, time casting your spells. Because the, the fixing is all colorless, I don't think that you're like scripted to have a certain color foundation. So I, I think that there's going to be a lot of flexibility on what four and five color decks look like, and I do think that they will exist. Next question, are lessons sort of like build your own modal card with a little more theory around the learn lesson? Uh, yeah, so basically, are these like a modal card? So basically, the question is, when you're drafting some lessons, are you basically trying to prioritize getting a wide range of payoffs so that you have like, you know, split cards that'll give you options? It's obviously nice to have more options, if you have a lot of cards that learn in your deck, you want a lot of lessons. But my guess is there are certain lessons that are best suited to certain strategies. And it's really just going to be very important to have one or even two copies of the lessons that are central to your strategy. And then you're also probably going to want to make sure that you always have a lesson that is a creature. So that when you play a lesson thing, if what you need is just more board presence you can get some kind of card that's going to give you a creature. And that's going to be like the primary way that they're modal. But I think that it's going to be less about, I just want random different lessons to have like access to a variety of effects and more, this is the lesson that my deck strategically is looking for. I need to make sure I have this lesson in particular. But I do think that, you know, like when you're drafting, it's kind of like drafting snow or whatever, where like the more you know snow payoffs you have, the more you want to prioritize snowlands. The more snowlands you have, the more highly you can prioritize future payoffs. Where 
you know, obviously, like, all of the lessons you have make all of your cards that learn better. All the cards that you have that learn make you want to draft lessons more highly. And you can end up in this space where, oh, I specialize in the fact that I have a lot of options for my lessons. Therefore, my learn cards are a little better and I'm prioritizing those a little bit more highly. The most natural way is, yeah, I only have, like, one or two learn cards in my deck. And there's, like, a specific lesson that I'm looking for in the draft. And when I see that, I'm going to take it so that my learn cards are doing the thing that I want them to do. If there's another lesson available, while there's not a card I need, I'll pick that up and have another option. Next question, what does a Witherbloom look like Witherbloom deck look like without Blood Researcher? It's strange that there aren't more life gain payoffs. Yeah, it, it is weird that there's like this one payoff that's so strong and not really like a backdoor there. But I mean what it looks like is just a green black deck. I'm making creatures, I'm sacrificing them, I'm gaining life and then like playing, you know, powerful creatures. Or maybe because you're like, well, there's this one common that I'm looking for to be this theme. I haven't found it. Maybe you branch out. Maybe you splash. Maybe you just like use your green-black infrastructure to stay alive and find other powerful stuff to do. Traditionally, it's been more challenging to splash in aggressive decks. Do I think Mardu decks will skew more toward lower hold plus black rather than silver quill plus red because of that? Absolutely love where your head's at. Strongly agree that control decks splash much more easily than aggressive decks also agree with the thinking that that means that more often it will be like lower hold with removal. The only wrench in that, I guess, is I do think that like strategically the intersection of the double striker and the stuff to make it grow does seem very good. That also might just be like a twist on lower hold more than a Mardu deck. Like maybe we're just playing star pupil and we're playing the things that put counters on star pupil and then sometimes our star pupil dies and we move the counters over to our twin scroll shaman. I mean, broadly, yes. In, in general, the more aggressive your deck is, the less likely it is to splash. The more controlling it is, the easier. So more of the three color decks will be controlling. That That's all certainly true. Next question is lessons. Where do they go in the pick order and are any main deckable? I haven't thought about whether I would want to main deck any lessons. I can certainly imagine a spot where, for example... I am playing a lot of colors and I've drafted multiple environmental sciences and I decide, you know, I would actually be happy to just draw a two mana fixing spell here. And I want one to learn for, but I also just want to draw this card sometimes. I do think that it will be the exception rather than the rule that you, you know, put any lesson at all in your deck, regardless of how strong it is, even if it's like, oh, this is super strong. You will probably have better access to it if you put it in your sideboard than if you main deck it. For the most part, I'm not looking to main deck lessons, especially not my first copy of any lessons. As for how high they are in my pick order, I think that for the most part, you're going to have an idea of which lessons are important to you, and you want to like make sure that you get like your first copy of that lesson, and then every other lesson is like, yeah, you know, if I have some learn cards, I'll take this over something that's not important to me, but it's not going to be a high priority for me. Another interesting note for people who've been listening to this podcast about lessons, for those of us who like to use seven stats from 17 lands to inform kind of a baseline about like what everyone else's experience would suggest are the important cards to draft, the data fields that we currently look at don't lend themselves very well to figuring out how valuable it is to spend a pick on lessons. So that, that'll be an interesting quirk to find a solution to. 
Next question is whether I think lessons fundamentally change how to construct your deck. Broadly, I think the answer is no. Um, they just don't, outside of the fact that like, if you have a lot of learn cards, you can treat them as an effect that you will regularly have access to. That's not something that has a great effect on deck building. Next question is, what stat line do I anticipate ruling the ground game? I don't have an answer to that question yet. I'm really not sure. I'm sorry. It's particularly tough to figure out because if we assume that you're trying to block against the aggro deck and the primary aggro deck is growing its creatures, it's not like I can say, oh, well, a lot of the creatures have three power. Well, a lot of the creatures are just like two drops that have two power that I expect my opponent will be putting some number of counters on. The removal, I think, in general, like most of the removal spells can kill most of the creatures unless those creatures are augmented. Then a lot of the removal still kills them, but also the augmented creatures are going to have protection spells to save them. So I don't know about the extent to which it'll feel like this is the number or not. Next question. In the first week of a new format, do you recommend forcing an archetype to learn it since everyone's still figuring out what the signals are? So the idea here is... Because you don't know if other people will be evaluating cards the same way that you are, you don't know what cards it would be correct to take as a signal. Therefore, it is harder to like find what is open. So maybe instead of trying to figure out what's open, maybe you should just have a thing that you like drafting and draft it, is what I'm reading here. And that's not the approach that I like, personally. I think it's different drafting styles suit different players and different experience levels differently. Me personally, I tend to feel like before people have a good handle on what the powerful cards are, maybe I can't interpret what cards being passed to me mean, but I do want to position myself to take advantage of cards that are being undervalued at the table. And so rather than saying, oh, the person next to me is not green because they passed me a packmate or whatever, say, I don't know if the person next to me is green or not, but I know that they don't care about this green card that I think is good. They passed this to me. Maybe they'll pass more of it to me, either because they're not green or because they don't respect this card. And then I would want to be in a position where I might get more of this card that they were underrating. I'm willing to just like trust the signals that I see as being informative of something. Either I'm not fighting with the person or I'm fighting with someone who I'm happy to fight with because they don't value cards the same way that I do. Next question is, I feel like a Lorehold deck won't feel powerful unless you get Quintarius. Is that the most important uncommon to its archetype? Is there another archetype equally dependent on an uncommon? I think Killian is extremely important to Silverquill. That is the black-white 2-2 menace lifelink that makes spells that target creatures you control cost two less. It is just like by far the best rate on a creature to augment and also like makes all of your like put counters on my things cheaper so that you can afford to like do that and protect your creature draws where quillian specifically is the creature that you're augmenting are just going to be worlds different from draws where you're putting counters on literally any other creature so uh that's my first thought about like oh well there's also this thing that really really wants this one specific uncommon my guess is that in both of these cases we will find ways to draft these archetypes that are less dependent on specifically that uncommon, but also that we'll find other uncommons that are really good and that, you know, you can draft a deck that is significantly more powerful when it draws that uncommon. Next question, how many learn cards will you be trying to get in your typical draft deck? How many lessons? What ratio? 
I don't think the ratio is that important. It's just like if I have a lot of lesson, a lot of learn cards, then I'll prioritize lessons a little bit more highly. But as long as I have a few lessons that do what I want, my trust that my learn cards will work. And I don't think that there's a number of learn cards that I'm targeting. You just factor in what the implied power level of the card is based on the lessons that it can get. And I think for the most part, the implied power level of the learn cards is not that high. The, the, the mechanic is honestly not that powerful. There are certain spots where like, oh, I'm trying to fix and I'm using environmental sciences to do it. So I'm going to prioritize some learn cards as part of my mana fixing. In most normal cases, it's not like this is a really important part of my plan. And it's just like, well, how good is this? Okay, well, I play it and then I get this effect or this effect. And then you assess how strong that is and decide if it's the card for you. So I'm going to uh, wrap this up. This is obviously a little bit different from the usual focus here. I, I hope that it's useful and interesting while we're trying to get a handle on what to anticipate here. I'm, you know, do, doing what I can to focus on what I think people are interested in while I uh, can't play with it. Obviously, this is not a change in direction for the program as a whole, just a way to make the best of the current situation where we don't have uh, the ability to play with the cards. So thank you everyone for tuning in. If you ever do have an opportunity to check the live recording and ask some questions, just as a reminder, I record this show every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Central Time. So hope to see anyone who has a chance in chat at some point in the future. And thank you again, everyone, for tuning in, listening, all the support, any reviews you leave, anyone you share uh, your appreciation of the podcast with, anything you do to help out really means a lot to me. So thank you. And goodbye for uh, now. I look forward to next week when I can talk about something in more detail when I will really wish that I could play with the cards, but maybe not have gotten to do so very much. Uh, by which I mean, there's a very good chance that next week I will delay the recording of this show by a day or two so that I can do it in a more informed fashion. That sounds like it would be a pretty good choice. I'm probably going to do that. That sounds smart. All right. Uh, goodbye.